When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam of Walsamid. So Sam, you were just out in LA. You're getting over the jet lag. Oh, that's probably not all that bad. It's not as bad as me flying out to the West Coast. It messes me uh, up for like a week. Uh, I'm so used to bouncing back and forth between here and the West Coast over the last couple of years that <laughs> the three-hour time difference really doesn't seem to make much of a difference anymore. All right, so I'm just weak. That's all. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but let's talk about cars first and what we're driving. And so this week, you were in the 2019 Chevy Silverado. Was that the four-cylinder version? or No, it was, it, was, it was not a four-cylinder. The uh, Silverado I had uh, just before I went to California was the uh, four-wheel drive uh, LT uh, Crew Cab Trail Boss Edition. Uh, which is basically the the off-road version. It's got the Z71 suspension package and uh, all kinds of other stuff. Uh, has the uh, this one had the 5.3 liter V8 with uh, the older eight-speed automatic transmission rather than the new 10-speed, which is available as an option, but it wasn't on the, the truck I was driving. Um, you know, so this is you know th- this is the newest truck you know from from GM. You know, along with the new um, Sierra, GMC Sierra, um, which has a little bit different styling. The the design of the Silverado has been somewhat controversial. Uh, some people really hate it. <laughs> um, some people think it's just dull and bland, and and others. Well, I think there's a couple of people that liked it, but I haven't haven't really heard anybody really rave about the design. Well, um, I, I, right, so it doesn't sound like you like it. I'm fine with it. You know, it, yeah. it doesn't bother me. You know, it's uh, I, personally, I still think the Ram, the the new, especially the new Ram is the best looking of the full size trucks. Um, I think, it, you know, I think it's got the best design. You know, this one, you know, this one's fine. Certainly the front end of the new Silverado is a lot busier than uh, past editions. You know, there's, there's a lot of lines and, you know, things at various angles and, you know, could be considered cluttered, uh, depending on how you look at it. The one I, you know, the one I was driving, which was the uh, the Trail Boss, you know, was in this Cajun red paint with black trim. You know, it had the um, black uh, grill and everything, which kind of hid a lot of that stuff. You know, I'm, I actually kind of like the some of the the lines and creases along the body sides. You know, that kind of break it up a little bit. It doesn't look so slab sided. Um, you know, others are not crazy about that. I'm, I'm fine with it. You know, it's, you know, it's not, 
exceptional, exceptionally good or bad for me. Uh, but like I said, you know, yeah, every, every, with design, everybody's got to make their own opinion about it. Oh yeah. And everybody uh, certainly has input. I, I don't know. Honestly, I don't find it all that offensive. And I think GM is not the only company that's going with lots of sculpting in the body sides, you know, just kind of random lines that they play off the light and they give you these different shapes, uh, in the reflections and, and shadow areas that everybody's doing that. So they're not alone there. And, and I, and I think I that's generally a good thing. You know, it makes it a little more interesting, uh, you know, a little more, um, you know, it, it catches your eye in, in different ways and, you know, makes you think about it a little more. Like I say, I, I don't personally have an issue with, with the design. Yeah. I, I The last time GM did a really groundbreaking design was, I, I think, in 1988, when they went from the trucks that they've been building since, like, 1972. Right. To, uh, that was, I think, the GMT-400, or, or the uh, first yeah. aerodynamic yep, trucks. Yeah, that, that was the GMT-400. Those were, I mean, that was such a huge, radical shift, and they've They've kind of been just rehashing that and refining it ever since, which is fine because th- none of them look bad in their trucks and truck. People are very factional about their trucks. I'm just, I was just curious. Yeah, and, about sort of- and, and this, you know, this is certainly the, the biggest departure in design since that GMT 400 uh, for the, at least for the Chevrolet trucks, you know, the GMC trucks have, have diverged a little bit more over the years, you know, with bolder wheel arches, you know, kind of squared off wheel arches. Um, you know, this one, uh, unlike a lot of the the past ones, you know the wheel arches are more round. You know the, the wheel wells are more rounded than than in the past. You know rather than the more squared off look that the GMs often had on on their trucks. Um, you know so it's it's fine. You know it's it's a good design. The, interestingly, you know the uh, the one I drove is the the Trail Boss version. Uh, you know they have uh, what three 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 engines at launch. So they've got uh, or four engines actually, I think, but the the four point the old four point three liter V six I think is only available on like fleet vehicles. Right, uh, so that's like uh, the LT kind of whatever, right? Like yeah, so like the work work truck, you know, the low end work truck uh, models. So I don't think they're they're selling those at retail. Um, and then there's this new two point seven liter turbocharged four cylinder, which is a, a big four, uh, and it's the first time they've ever put a four cylinder into the full size trucks. Um, I've heard some mixed reviews on that. Some people like it. Some people don't. Um, I haven't driven it yet, so I, I will refrain from commenting on that one. Um, there's also the 6.2 liter V8, um, as well as a 5.3 liter V8. Uh, and then coming in the spring will be a new 3 liter inline 6 uh, diesel. Um, the two V8s, both the 5.3 and the 6.2, are the first engines, the first production engines to feature uh, something called dynamic skip fire, I think, or I think GM is actually branding it as um, dynamic um, dynamic fuel management. So it's a, a next generation version of cylinder deactivation, which is something that GM's had on their their truck V8 engines for a long time now. Which you know, under light load conditions in the past, the that, you know the cylinder deactivation would shut off you know either two or four cylinders and could run as a V6 or or a four cylinder engine. Uh, in in the case of this new system, it's a system that was developed by a, a California startup called Tula, and you know they commercialized it in cooperation with uh, Delphi. And this one, 
what it does is, you know, uses some sensors on the engine, you know, to detect vibration and, and, you know, as well as getting the other engine inputs, uh, you know, for load, you know, demand and everything else. And it can shut off, you know, up to all, up to all but one cylinder. So, um, it, it can, in principle, you know, a V8 engine go from, go from a V8 down to a single cylinder, uh, in practice on the, on these engines, on these GM engines, um, they're only going down to two cylinders because the explanation I got when I talked to Dan Nicholson earlier this year about it, he's their head of powertrain at GM, uh, is that they found that, you know, going, you know, dropping down all the way down to one cylinder didn't really give them any extra, any real advantage in terms of fuel economy um, and started to get into, you know, areas where, you know, vibration could be a problem. And what it does is, you know, the, on the old cylinder deactivation, it was always the same cylinders that would shut off. It would be the two on the end and then, and then the four on one half, you know, one, uh, one end of the engine. Um, in the case of this one, it can shut off any of the eight cylinders and it doesn't keep the same cylinders shut off. So it'll, you know, on one engine cycle, it'll shut off one cylinder, It'll shut off a cylinder at one position, then the next one it'll go another, and it, so it bounces around. So it's kind of it's kind of randomized. And we actually did uh, last year at CES, we, we, um, I did an interview with um, somebody from Delphi, uh, 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 VP of Engineering at Delphi, um, Jim. I can't remember his name now, but uh, we had it on the show. We included that interview in the show, yeah. And I'll find the link to it and uh, include it in the show notes. Uh, and he explained some more of this, but basically, you know, the way the system works is really just completely seamless. You know, as you're driving along, you never see any indication or, you know, there's never any indication in terms of noise or vibration or anything else that it's running on anything but eight cylinders. So it's from that perspective, it works really well. Uh, from the perspective of fuel economy, you know, it it should give about a, a 10, 12% boost in fuel economy on these engines. Um, but you know, in reality, on this particular truck that I was driving, because I think in part because it was a the Trail Boss edition, you know, so it had the off-road suspension and the big off-road tires. And, uh, you know, the, speaking of which, the tires on this thing make a lot of noise when you're rolling okay. down the road. Yeah. You know, this is big open tread blocks. Uh, they are not quiet tires at all. Uh, so, you know, if you're if you're looking for a quiet ride, uh, you probably want to stay away from the Trail Boss version. Well, and that's funny, too, because the, the the GM trucks for the, at least the last several years have touted how quiet and refined they are. They made a big deal about how much they went through those trucks. The last what was it? 2013, 2012, uh, something yeah. like that. I think it was 13. Um, and they they changed a lot of the steel, and they did a lot of work to just get rid of noise, vibration, harshness, bring the interior noise level down, and it worked. They were they were pretty quiet, and and that was actually quite nice. It was one of the things that I liked the most about them. Um, so to go backwards on that and, and add knobby well, tires, you know, it, but it's I not mean, the, I guess it's a particular model, right? Like, yeah, it's it's, the, it, that's why I say it's 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 something that's particular to the the Trail Boss. You know, I mean, if you if you drive one of the regular ones, you know, on standard you know on road tires, um, it's going to be a lot quieter. You know, because when you're you know when you're in the truck, you know, the the truck itself feels rock solid. 
You know, there's no vibrations, there's no rattles or anything like that. It's just the tread noise of these off-road tires. And, you know, the same thing applies if you if you drive a Raptor or, you know, a Ram Rebel, you know, that has, you know, off-road optimized tires or a Wrangler. You know, you, those kind of tires are inherently going to make a lot more noise when you're driving down the road. So, you know, if if what you want to do, you know, if, if your usage pattern for your truck is to drive on road and you're never going to go off, you know, you know, bouncing down trails or, you know, through canyons, uh, you know, don't be a poser. Don't buy, don't buy a trail boss or, you know, want any, any of the equivalent off-road variants of the trucks, you know, only buy those if, if you actually plan to use them off-road. Otherwise buy one of the, the, the other models, because like I said, these, regardless of who, who, you know, what company you're talking about, these tires do make a lot of noise, you know, especially at highway speeds. You know, there's quite a hum that, that gets generated by these tires. The the other thing about these, um, you know, uh, the, you know, the tires is not just the noise, but you also have a lot more rolling resistance because the truck is sitting up a little higher. You've got more aerodynamic drag. Yeah, you know, and you know, GM did a lot of work on the aerodynamics on this truck. You know, to to improve it. You know, to help fuel economy. Uh, you know, and it also had some other benefits as well. Like one of the cool things about about the uh, new GM trucks. Is they have a higher uh, bedside, so you can. Uh, there's actually more volume. You know, up you can fill. You can fill up more stuff in the bed of the truck, all the way up to the the top edge of the bed. Uh, you know, and there, it can. I forget what the total increase is, but it's, it was a pretty significant increase. You know, the the bed sides are about five or six inches taller than they were in the past. Uh, which which makes a noticeable difference if you tend to carry a lot of stuff in the bed as opposed to using the truck for towing. That helps aero. Um, you know, you've got things like standard um, uh, uh, grill shutters that uh, you know that close off the airflow through the engine. But you know, again, when you go to the Trail Boss, you know it sits up higher, which means it's going to have a larger frontal area. Those tires are going to have both more rolling resistance and more aerodynamic drag. Um, so that has an impact on fuel economy. You know, so the the uh, four-wheel drive uh, Silverado with the 5.3 liter is EPA rated at uh, 16 miles per gallon city, uh, 22 highway, uh, 18 combined. Over the, the just under a week that I drove it, I got about 17, which is, you know, by... The it's not current, terrible. It's not terrible. So, I mean, you know, if you look, if you compare it to a truck of five or ten years ago, that's actually really good, uh, especially since a lot of my driving was around town. But uh, you know, if you compare it to some of the latest generation of of trucks, uh, you know, again, if you compare it to the ones that are you know optimized for on road use, you know, you look at the Ram with the eTorque, uh, the mild hybrid system, or one of the EcoBoost uh, Fords. Yeah, it's they're going to get better fuel economy than this. But again, this this is low. You know what I got is lower because of all this other stuff. Uh, you know that because it's an off road version, uh, and they don't separately rate. They you know have a separate fuel economy rating for the Trail Boss that I can see. So it's you know it, it's it all comes down to um, you know what you need. You know I mean if you want a little better fuel economy in your truck. You know, again, probably unless you're going to go, you know, actually do some off-roading and use the truck the way it's intended, you probably don't need to spend the, the extra money on the Trail Boss. You know, go for one of the more premium editions.
But it doesn't look as tough. I mean, it's the same as the people who buy the Raptor and then commute in them. Like, they, they're just willing to pay for the fuel to yeah. fill the thing. Yeah, I mean, and if you know, if you don't care about the, the noise and, and the fuel economy, eh, go for it. It's your money. But it's our planet, Sam. <laughs> it's our planet. <laughs> that's what I hear. That's what I hear. Uh, yeah, that's a whole other argument that I'm not going to get into with the people that commute in Raptors, unless they're acquaintances of mine i'm not going to go accost random people about it but uh it's just an inherently inefficient way to get from place to place <laughs> yeah um yeah then you know the the other thing about this truck is the interior um which you know if you read uh lawrence ulrich's review and the drive uh, a month or so ago he was not crazy about this truck um you know and you know, to be honest, you know, the interior trim, you know, the materials and everything, it certainly doesn't feel as premium as the, the new Ram. You know, the, the new Ram, you know, is by far and away the, the nicest truck interior of, of anything on the road today, the new Ram 1500. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody's chasing the Ram. The thing that, that astounds me about that or that, the thing that I like about it is even if it's not the limited, you know, in the lower trim levels with cloth seats and stuff, that it's still a very nice interior, and ev- nobody's doing that as well as Ram. Yeah, and and you know, and they, you know, frankly, they've been doing it for a while, so uh, you know, they're they're doing they're they're doing it well. Um, you know, even you know, even Ford, you know, is certainly not up to the same standard as the the Rams. Uh, yeah, and I, I'd say that overall, you know, the Silverado is. You know, roughly on a par in terms of materials and everything with the F-150. Um, you know, it does have it does actually have a couple of things that are that I would say are advantages over uh, certainly over the F-150. Um, it's you know like the Ram. Uh, it has it now has USB Type C ports uh, in there. It has uh, two of them up front in addition to the traditional USB A ports. So if you've got a newer phone that uses USB C. Um, or, you know, one of the new iPad Pros or something like that. Uh, you know, that means you get higher power output. It'll charge faster uh, from those ports. You know, you can plug it in directly. Um, and then one of the, the really cool features in the back seat and the crew cab, there's actually a couple of uh, hidden storage compartments in the seat backs. So, you know, you'll if you look at the rear seat, uh, seat back, you'll see there's a little um, strap that you can pull out and it opens up, and so there's a section in the middle of the, the rear seat back that open that opens up, and there's a door, and there's a, a hidden compartment behind that. So you can stash some stuff, um, you know, that you want to keep out of sight back there, as well as in the big center console area. I, that's the thing that separates, I think, uh, trucks from or the the trucks that are sort of well well thought out from those that. Aren't you know the the way they have the size of the center consoles that you can fit like hanging folders in some of them and just all of that stuff is very thoughtful and and clever. Those are the things that I like to see in trucks. Is just that they thought about the people who are going to use them. Um, what's the the our favorite subject? What's the infotainment like in it? Um, it's you know pretty much the same kind of stuff you'll find in most uh, current Chevrolet vehicles. You know, it's the latest version of. Uh, Chevy uh, MyLink, which is based on the uh, same electrical electronic architecture as uh, Cadillac Cube, but with a different skin. Uh, you know, it's it's a pretty straightforward system. You know, you get a 
grid of eight icons. You can swipe through a couple of pages of it. It's got support for Android Auto and Apple CarPlay as it, as it did in the previous generation as well. Um, you know, so, you know, there, it's a touchscreen like all other trucks. You know, there's no, no center controller or anything like that. Uh, it's, it's about, you know, what you expect in most modern vehicle, most modern domestic vehicles. Don't sound so excited. You're like, eh, it's, I mean, it's there. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's, it's fine. <laughs> it, you know, it works. There's, it didn't do anything silly. You know, it was fairly responsive. Um, you know, unlike, you know, some of the earlier systems, you know, like seven, eight years ago where, you know, there was a lot of lag, you know, it was, it was responsive enough. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I'll, I will try out the stock interfaces, you know, and it, it's pretty much the same interface that you'll find on pretty much any other contemporary Chevrolet vehicle right now. So there's no surprises there. You know, it's not, it's nothing fancy, but it, it, it works reasonably well. Yeah. Well, all right. Uh, and, so and this, this truck, uh, cost $57,000. That was that was the sort of next thing I was going to ask. So how like what kind of size of uh, you know how big is the pile of cash they want you to light on fire for it? It's it's, uh, it's a pretty hefty pile. That's not, not as big as the pile of leaves that I raked up in my yard over the last few weeks, but definitely a pretty hefty pile of cash. But but you, I mean you don't need a truck for a pile of leaves. That's I mean that that's what I always come back to with the pickup trucks is that they're not they're not always as useful as you'd think they are. And I think that's why we're seeing a proliferation of two thirds SUVs, right? Like the, the crew cab pickups are very popular for the individual car owner or you know, the, the individual buyer person. Yeah. And, well, and, and it's the thing, the crew cab over the last 10 years has 10, 15 years really has become the, the dominant form factor for trucks. And it used to be, you know, in the, late 80s, early 90s, it was all about the regular cabs, you know, and then the, the extended cabs, you know, had, had some, you know, they, they took some market share, but in the light duty trucks, you know, the, the crew cab didn't really become a, a, a factor in light duty trucks until the late 90s, you know, is when they really started to become yeah. available. And, and that's, that's when people started using them as personal vehicles, you know, like, like a, a sedan replacement. Right. Exactly and, well, and are. you mentioned you mentioned the GMT 400 earlier, which was like the 87, 88 uh, variant. Yeah, 88, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, I don't think it was there at launch, but uh, and within the first couple of years of the GMT 400, it was the first. I'm pretty sure it was one of the first trucks uh, to have um, you know the rear hinged um, half doors to give access to the the back seat and the extended cab. You know, prior oh, to that, you, yeah, you had to hit, you know, you had to flip the seats forward to get into the cab. It was like yeah. a coupe. And the, the GMT 400 was one of the first to to offer those uh, half doors to give you better access. Actually, I think they they did it on the, the S10 and S15 first and then put it on the big trucks. Um, and then subsequently, you know, in the years since, you know, the the crew cab has become so popular that even the extended cab now is almost as big as you know, almost as long as what, you know, some of the early crew cabs were. And, you know, they're now all using forward hinged, uh, yeah. you know, traditionally hinged doors, you know, for all four I'll, doors. But the, I find it weird that Ram makes two different four door cabs. You know, you've yeah. got the extended cab that has those short rear doors, but they're not really all that short. And then you've got the full, you know, crew cab that has larger rear doors, the larger back seat area. 
It's like, why bother? Because who wants to buy the shortest extended cab? Just make them all the same size. But well, I, they've I done mean, the they're, they're, I mean, the, the thing about the crew cabs, though, is um, because the cab is so long, uh, you generally can't get like the longest bed. You know, So if you want an oh, eight-foot yeah, bed, true. you can't get that with a crew cab. Uh, whereas the extended cab, you can usually still get, you know, an eight foot bed with the extended cab. So you have that extra convenience of the longer cab, the back seat. Uh, but you, you know, if you need the long bed, you still have that available to you. So that's, that's why you have that, that differentiation. But, you know, the, the tradition, the, the regular cabs, you know, are largely now, you know, they don't sell very many of them retail anymore. It's mostly for the contractor market, you know, and usually, you know, for applications where they're putting, you know, fit, you know, putting something on the the back, you know, to carry all the tools or equipment or parts yeah. or whatever they're hauling around. So those are those are the most common uses for the regular cabs. For uh, for retail customers, the crew cabs, I think, are typically somewhere about sixty to sixty five percent of all oh, sales. Man. That's uh, yeah. So I, I guess it just speaks to how people actually use the trucks, where the beds are small. And the payload is low, and the towing capacity isn't great. I mean, the, to- the towing capacity is more than you're going to need anyway. But overall, well, you, know, the I mean, you can get you know eleven, twelve thousand pound towing capacity depending on which yeah. engine you choose and which which combination you choose. So right. you know you you can't complain about this, but twelve thousand pounds is saying, a like, lot more than your average truck buyer is ever going to actually use. Yeah, the, the towing in terms of towing, they're fine. Uh, so yeah, let me let me wind that back a little bit. But the the payload, you know, you have to do the careful math and be like if I put four full size adults in here, <laughs> how much can I put in the bed? And sometimes it's not that high. It's not not as big a number as you'd expect. So um, yeah, I mean the, yeah. the typical payload on the full size trucks now is you know around seventeen hundred to two thousand pounds. So you know you put four four adults in there. You know, you're getting typically down under a thousand pounds. But again, you know, most of the time, if you're, you know, hauling, you know, a full load in there, you're usually not hauling a full load of people. Yeah, no, they know their market. That's why there's so many variations and and options. And so they wouldn't offer all those if they didn't think they could sell them or there weren't wasn't demand. And so trucks are really the only only sort of corner of the automotive market here in the u.s where there's just still that just i don't know is it even billions or is it millions of possible combinations it, no it's, 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 it's in it's in the millions um yeah i'm not sure what it is today but i remember about five or six years ago uh like for f-150 um you know there, at one point there was about 14 million buildable combinations if you <laughs> If you look, went through all the different variations of engines and transmissions and front, front wheel, or rear wheel drive, four wheel drive, uh, different suspensions, different trailering packages, colors, you name you know, all the different trim levels, and I doubt that it's you know it's it's definitely still in the millions. You know it's probably at least you know five or six million buildable combinations even today when even when they've tried to simplify stuff but you know when when you look at you know for example on the you know the silverado uh you know once the diesel arrives you're going to have uh five different engine options uh with you know eight eight speed and ten speed transmissions uh on various uh, engines uh you know it, it it gets out of hand really fast you know and then you combine you know the three different 
beds, you know, regular cab or three three cabs, regular cab, extended cab, crew cab, short beds, long beds, you name it. It's it gets crazy. Yeah. I mean, a company could go bankrupt making everything that way. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Yeah. Uh, so this week, my vehicle has been the Ford Echo Sport SES. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, there's <laughs> an enthusiastic uh, start to the review. Well, you know, I- I'm trying not to uh, get to. I guess just like lose perspective about where it fits. Um, it is the most compact crossover in the Ford North American lineup. So it fills a niche. It basically is now the only way to get Fiesta hardware here. And that's fine. And it drives like a Fiesta. So it drives fine ish, but it's ish. really, yeah, it's, there's a solid uh, lack of refinement. I, I would say you're being um, a little generous to say it drives like a Fiesta. Uh, it feels solid. It goes down the road well. It steers well. It rides and, and handles decently. Um, and, and honestly, I guess what I'm trying to do is this is not a car that was designed for this market. This is a Brazilian market crossover. No, Indian. That oh, it was Indian. Yes. Ah, I thought that. Okay. So and it's, it's, it's actually Indian made in market. India. It's it's the only. Uh, it's the only vehicle that Ford imports from India. Huh. I mean, and so in a developing market, in a different place in the world, it, it, it's a different kind of car, and it's a different proposition. Here, it's this one is an SES trim. It was dollars $26,000, and I was just like, ah, for that kind of money, it doesn't feel refined enough, um, even in this class. You know, the engine is, there's a lot of vibration do you have the four cylinder or the one liter three cylinder? Yeah, no, it's the four cylinder. Um, performance is fine. Economy's not great because you're kind of cane it in a in a few instances. I don't like the automatic. I think it's the power shift automatic, um, which I don't like. <laughs> if it's even if it's not the power shift, I just don't like how they've they've calibrated it. It doesn't respond when you want it to. Like when you're pulling out into heavy traffic, it thinks about it. You're like, could you just go? Uh, and that's, again, that's not just Ford. There's a lot of cars that do that, but it seemed pretty stark in, in the Echo Sport. Um, you know, the, the cabin and, uh, the outfitting seems fine-ish. Um, this, the materials aren't as nice as I'd like, again, for, for 20-something thousand dollars, $25,000, but it starts less than that. And this one had a couple of packages on it. I, You know, it's comfortable. There are thoughtful touches. You know, it's a small car. doesn't occupy a large footprint, but it has a lot of well-thought-out places to store and things. You know, there's plenty of uh, room in the doors, like door pockets. There's actually little clever pockets on the, the, si- on the inside sides of the seats. There's a little pocket that you could like stick your cell phone or something in there and just forget about it. Um, so I thought that was clever. Uh, the, I, the one standout, like the most standout thing to me is that it has a side hinge rear door. And I was like, well, that is just not practical. <laughs> but in you why know, do you say it's not markets, practical? It's different. I just the you know a hatch that swings up. You don't have to stand like back as far and it, it, it swings up and out of the way instead of making sure you're on the proper side of it. So depending on what side of the street you're on, the way that thing opens and I, I don't know. 
And maybe well, it's the, not, the, not the, the reason though. why it's side hinged is, you know, the original design, you know, when they launched it in India in 2013 or 14 or so, um, it originally had uh, a rear mounted spare tire. So it was, the well, that makes spare, a lot more sense. The spare tire was mounted on the tailgate. Um, after they started, you know, when they first started uh, sending them to Europe, the Europeans did not like that. They wanted the spare underneath. And so they, they moved the spare, but, you know, they couldn't really re-engineer the tailgate. I I think that, you know, for a smaller vehicle like that, there are actually are some uh, some advantages to having the, the side-hinged gate. Because, you know, for one thing, you know, if, uh, you know, if you're, you know, obviously this isn't an issue for uh, people of your stature, but... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know the you know the roof line is is shorter than on some other some other vehicles, um, and you know compared to a lot of utilities, you know compared to an Escape or something like that, it's not as tall, and so you know it makes it actually makes it a little easier you know to get access without you know bonking your head or anything. So you know de- depending on depending on the use case, you know there there are some advantages to having the uh, the side hinge door. All right. I mean, I'm I'm willing to just say, and honestly, like I don't really care one way or another. Just, I'm not going to disagree with all the other stuff you're saying about it, but that you know, just kind of <laughs> making the making the excuse for that one at least. So yeah, I I got in it the first day, and I was like, this is what people want, and then you know, realizing also that not exactly. Um, this is what Ford had to try to meet what people want here. It's not necessarily what people you know what i'm saying it's oh, yeah. it's what they had in their lineup that they were able to fit into the lineup here and i would expect the next time around uh if they decide to redesign it they're going to do it more with the north american market in mind and and it will be better uh its styling is funky i don't really like the way it looks it's really stubby and its tires look very small and the wheel openings and stuff but those are stylistic you know that's opinion so Fine. I can see how if you're that sort of urban driver and you want a crossover, yes, this is largely what people want. It's got some cargo space. It fits in pretty much just about any parking spot. It's not that long, so it's easy to to get in and out of of uh, you know through traffic. You can thread the needle with it pretty easily, and because it's sure footed, uh, you know that helps out quite a bit. Um, the the lack of power is an issue when you're trying to thread the needle, but it, it, I mean, it does. Okay. It's, it's fine. And it'll, it'll, it'll get up there and, and move itself along. Uh, you just, you know, when I compare it to something like, uh, what is the Honda HRV? Uh, the Honda feels a lot more refined or, you know, the, I, I, I'm constantly thinking a, a size level up. Cause this is, this is just compact. If I wanted something this small, I'd have a hatchback, not a crossover, but, um, well, that, you, that applies to you and I, but unfortunately right, it's not it doesn't apply to the market at large. Right, right. And and so if people want something smaller, it's not a terrible option. It just doesn't feel as nice as some of the other uh competitors. You know, in terms of functionally, yeah, it's fine. Um I just I, I have a hard time paying twenty six thousand dollars for this vehicle getting twenty four miles per gallon and uh I also think that uh, for me, the one determining factor for an in-town crossover is going to be the turning circle. And this has an awful turning circle. 
Yeah. It's just, so you got to do three-point turns everywhere. Have you driven the Nissan Kicks? I haven't. Okay. But you, you've driven the CHR though, right? The Toyota CHR? Uh, yes. How, how would you this is, compare this, this against the, the CHR? CHR. This, so the CHR is better to drive. But the uh, the Echo Sport is probably more practical. It's a little more upright. Um, Space wise, I don't know how how far off they are. The, the in my mind, the Echo Sport feels a little bit more roomy. I don't know how true that is. But. I, I think it's I think it does have a slight edge. You know, mainly because of just kind of the profile of the car. Uh, you know, it's got that boxier profile. You know, more traditional. Yeah wagon like roof line whereas the chr you know is more like a coupe uh yeah i, I so. think the because the the echo sport is sort of making fewer fewer allowances for style it has an edge in practicality and honestly i think the interior materials and outfitting and in, in, in the ford is probably better than the toyota but the toyota was more fun to drive <laughs> Yeah, well, you're you're right though that you know the uh, the Echo Sport is definitely um, you know it was never in- originally intended for the U.S. market. You know they've they've pretty heavily re-engineered it twice now. Uh, you know first you know when it went to Europe and then again before they brought it to North America. Uh, you know they've they've gone through it and you know done a pretty hefty revamp on a lot of elements of it. So like for example. You know, they they re-engineered, they they redid the the suspension. You know, the architecture didn't change, but they retuned everything when they went to the European market. They moved the spare tire off the tailgate, put it underneath, things like that. Um, and then when they brought it to North America, they gave it an all new interior. So, you know, you've got that that touchscreen that's sitting up on top of the dashboard. You know, as is the current style. Um, you know, all that was completely redone before they launched it here. But, you know, you're right, it still has a bit of, you know, kind of the cheap feel to it. Um, you know, it's it was clearly, you know, it was not designed uh, for a market with higher expectations, let's put it that way. Yeah, and I, but I don't know how much that hurts them because I feel like we're, we're, we try to be in tune with those expectations, which are sort of like a market-wide thing, but when somebody is on a personal level looking for something and this is at the lower end of the market, you know, you're looking to, to not spend a whole lot of money and you're looking for something because you, this is the perfect first vehicle for somebody who just got their first job and you, you're going to live in an urban center and yeah, it's a great, you know, urban crossover, you know, because of that small footprint, it's easy to park and things like that. Um, but I think when they get around to the next generation, you know, that's where you'll really start to see them uh, do something quite different with it, you know, to, to really make it more appealing. Although, you know, it's so far it's selling reasonably well here as well. You know, it's, uh, you know, last year they were doing like 5,000 units a month, uh, which is, which is pretty good. Yeah. So, I mean, that's why I hesitated a little bit. I have my critique of it, but I think that some of those, criticisms are just things that Ford is aware of first of all. Oh yeah. And, they, they're, they're, they're well aware of the limitations of the echo sport. You know, they, you know, they obviously, you know, they, they play it up as much as they can, but you know, they, they know that, you know, this is their first entry into this segment and it, it probably, you know, it, it won't be the last. Yeah. But honestly, 
backing up a little bit, it's it's more positive than negative. You know, it it fills that hole in the market that you know Ford needed to fill, uh, and and so it it does its job. And you know, it, you're going to make a trade off no matter no matter what brand you go to. You know, like we were just talking about the CHR. Well, the CHR, you know, it has its own list of positives and negatives, and they're different than the the Echo Sport. So. Uh, I wish they'd give it another damn name too. Echo Sport is just hard to constantly remember because it's Eco, but they, it's Ford, so they say Echo. Well, again, you know, um, unlike you know EcoBoost, you know, when they launched this thing, you know, they very very explicitly took care to pronounce it Echo um, because they they didn't want to they didn't really want to play up the whole fuel economy thing too much because. Frankly, as you saw, it it doesn't get it's particularly great fuel economy. <laughs> right. uh, you know, so it, you know it, they they were trying to play that down a little bit. I don't. I don't. It's it's it was very interesting to to drive, and I really it's not a vehicle I dislike. It's just um, yeah, there's so there's a lot of competition down there in that that end of the market, and and so uh, it's tough to tough to just drive one and say. You know, this is the perfect thing. Like they, they're all going to have trade-offs, and and some are going to be better than others. My preference would be for something that is a little quieter, a little smoother, um, still as as light on its feet that can maneuver a little bit more tightly in town. But yeah, you know, it's it's an option. It's there. If you like Fords, go go check it out. Yeah, and you know, unlike the CHR, the Echo Sport is available with all-wheel drive. The CHR, at least in North America, is uh, front drive only. You know that's true. That's actually uh, one of its selling points. This, the one that I'm driving, is an SES uh, four wheel drive or all wheel drive. I forget what they call it, but it's it's basically all wheel drive. And uh, not everything in this, like the Kicks, doesn't have it. The um, uh, there's a couple that uh, others that don't have it either. Uh, that don't have all wheel drive. They're just front wheel drive only. Um, so that that is something that gives it an edge. You know, where you, if you want that all wheel drive thing, you can. Can get it yeah i mean you know if you if you live in the northeast or you know somewhere where it gets cold and and snowy it's it's definitely something worth considering you know that reminds me um last week we talked about winter tires and uh so i was looking to find something to put on the crown victoria um and there's a whole new class of tires uh that i i hadn't been aware of or or maybe maybe they're overselling it but so the Toyo Celsius is one of them, um, and it's not—it's not a all-season tire. They call it an all-weather tire. So it's actually designed to deliver better snow and ice traction, but also be on the car year-round. But it's not the same as like just your regular all-wheel drive tire. So the all-weather tire has the little mountain with the snowflake icon okay. on its sidewall. So I was—I uh, was very curious about that. I'm going to have to see you know, look more into it, but basically it is, it's, it's got, you know, it's got a deeper tread, it's got different siping, um, and probably a different compound than your regular all season tire that like we were talking about, gets, you know, the, the compound gets harder in, uh, in, in cold weather and stuff. But, uh, in some, some tests, uh, the all weather tires and the, the Toyo Celsius in particular, they do deliver shorter stops. They're not quite as good as something like the Blizzax that I've got on the Jeep, but they're also better than the all-season tires that it would have come with otherwise. So it's just an interesting wrinkle that 
you know. Well, I, I did see uh, Alex Nunez in L.A. this week at the auto show, <clears throat> and uh, uh, he also uh, still reps um, Michelin as well. So he's gonna he's gonna reach out to you to try and uh, hook you up with something to to, to test out oh. from Michelin. Well, now he's on the hook for it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if he listens. He probably doesn't because he's a busy guy. <laughs> uh, he does sometimes. And he, uh, he, he, did, he did say he would get on the show with us soon. Uh, that's, that's good. I would like to have him on the show. I like it when he busts my chops. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just looking at the Michelin website. And they've got the, uh, the new Michelin Cross Climate Plus tire. High level of performance and safety for a long time in all weather conditions. So I think this, uh, this kind of fits into that that segment that you're talking about of, of all weather tires. Yeah. So that was, and that was a new one on me to see like, what's an all weather tire. And I guess that's basically what it is. It's an all season that's designed to actually perform a little bit better in the snow. Okay. Well, we'll definitely have to, uh, have to try these out on uh, one of these days. Um, okay. So what else uh, are you done with the echo sport? Yeah, I'm done with the echo sport. Let's move on. Let's hit some topics. Cause you were in LA at the LA auto show and that's yeah. way more exciting. Yeah. Um, so in uh, in L.A., um, I saw there was actually a surprising amount of new product uh, this time around. Uh, a lot of debuts there this, this year. And uh, it all started off on Monday um, with uh, Lincoln gave us uh, before the, the show officially opened. They gave us a preview of the new Lincoln Aviator, which we saw as a concept in New York uh, last March the new york show uh, and it's now in production form and pretty much unchanged from the the concept that they showed last spring so you know the the interesting thing about the the aviator um uh, in addition to you know bringing back a, an old nameplate that uh you know it was actually a fairly short-lived nameplate for lincoln but um it, it was back in what i think 2003 to 2005 so it was only about three years yeah. that it was in production uh based on the last generation body on frame Explorer. Um, this one uh, is all new. And uh, and when I say all new, I mean really all new. It's not just a, a rehash of anything existing. <coughs> um, this is the, the first product off of one of the five new platforms that Ford talked about when they gave us a, a preview last spring. Um, so going forward, all of all of Ford's models are going to be moving to one of five flexible platform architectures, as they describe them. Uh, there's a, uh, a transverse engine unibody, uh, which will be for smaller and mid-sized vehicles. It, you know, kind of replaces the, you know, the current CD uh, and compact platforms that we've got today. Um, there is uh, a body on frame, uh, which is for the the trucks and the big utilities. There's a commercial vehicle platform. Uh, which um, you know is for things like the transit and transit connect uh, there will be a new dedicated electric platform which will debut with the 2020 um, electric crossover that they're building and then the fifth one is this uh, longitudinal engine rear drive unibody platform that uh, is the basis for the aviator and will also underpin the new explorer when it arrives uh, next spring as well it is known as a proper platform. The engine is in there north south, yep, and it drives the rear wheels. Yes, <laughs> or or all the wheels. It, it you know, also has all wheel drive. You know, but both of the unibody platforms, you know, will have support for all wheel drive. Uh, 
And, you know, but in, you know, in this case, you know, the engine is, as you said, longitudinal, there's a drive shaft running down the middle, uh, to the rear axle. Uh, it's got a multi-link rear or actually the integral link rear. So it's, it's a similar layout to what you have today on the Mustang and the fusion and the edge, um, different parts, you know, the parts are not interchangeable. You know, the size is a little bit different, but the same, same type of layout, uh, which is a, a really good setup, a really nice, um, multi-link setup that does really good uh, wheel positioning. Uh, and then at the front, because you no longer have the engine mounted sideways, uh, you have a little more room to work with up front. So it's got a, a double control arm, uh, short long arm uh, front suspension layout, which uh, should aid ride quality and agility and, and, and steering feel and everything else. Um, overall, the size is fairly similar to the the current generation explorer they didn't give us actual dimensions so we don't uh, can't say for sure um but you know what's what's interesting is you know they've taken the design language that we have on the navigator today that debuted on the uh, a couple years ago on the uh continental and then went to the navigator on this one this is not just a three-quarter scale navigator They've got they've you know they've taken that approach that you see on the navigator and refined it a little bit more. The navigator you know is big and blocky you know kind of aircraft carrier uh, sized vehicle. Yeah, um, sure you is. Know, this one you know the the edges are a little more smoothed off, a little more rounded. You know when you look at the navigator in profile, you'll see that the roof and the belt line and the the character lines along the side all run fairly horizontal, fairly parallel to each other. When you look at the aviator in profile, it's got a little bit more taper, a subtle taper towards the back. You know, it looks a little sleeker, a little more refined. Uh, you know, I mean, it's still, it's still a fairly large vehicle, but uh, a little, you know, in, in some ways it looks a little more upscale. It's a three-row uh, crossover. Um, the base engine in here is going to be the three-liter twin-turbo V6. Uh, please don't call it a, an Echo Boost. Um, that uh, <laughs> that you find in the okay, it's uh, in GTDI, the GTDI, right? It is GTDI, G yes. G but it, GTDI, but Lincoln that's Lincoln no call. longer uses the EcoBoost branding. Yeah. So it's that's, it's they, a, should, they should use some other classically great name. Yeah, I'm not sure what that would be. I know uh, they haven't come up with one yet. I'm I'm sure at some point the marketers will come up with one. Uh, but you know, it's basically a three liter version of the Nano V6 that's in the F150. Um, and in, in several other vehicles and it, and, you know, in this application, you know, it's doing 400 horsepower, 450 foot pounds of torque. Um, and, but then, you know, the, the thing that's new, you know, back last March when, uh, Ford gave us a preview of a bunch of new products, one of the things that they talked about at that time was that going forward, all of their utility vehicles would have electrified powertrain options which means, you know, a hybrid, plug-in hybrid, or full battery electric as, an, as at least available on every single new SUV that they build. And that starts with the Aviator. So, you know, in order to do that, you know, as they've designed these new platforms, they've done something that's called, uh, in the industry, it's called package protecting. So when, they, when you design the platform, you design it with the anticipation that you know you, you know that there's going to be some versions of it that are going to have hybrid systems in them, and so you build in the space in the architecture for that. So you know if you look at you know the the C Max hybrid, 
um, you know, as an example, or, or actually better, the, the plug-in hybrid or the Focus Electric. You'll notice that uh, if you look in the cargo area, there's not much of it left because a lot of it was consumed by batteries that were, you know, added later, you know, well after the vehicle was already designed. Uh, in the case of this aviator, uh, that is not the case. The, the battery sits entirely underneath the right-hand side of the floor, uh, underneath the second row passenger side, uh, right-hand side uh, seats. Uh, and spans from about the back of the front passenger seat all the way to the uh, just ahead of the rear axle. They're not saying at this point what the size of the you know what the capacity of the battery is, but they hinted that you know this because this vehicle is also intended to be sold in China, um, you know where uh, there's some significant tax breaks for plug-in hybrids that get over 50 kilometers of electric range, so about 31 miles of electric range, you know that. It will be enough to support that, so it's probably going to be somewhere around 18 to uh, six, 16, somewhere between 16 and, eight, and 20 kilowatt hours. You know, probably somewhere in the 18 kilowatt hour range. Uh, and you know, but the you know the battery, you know, despite that size, doesn't take up any room in the inside the vehicle. So you have the full cargo space. There's still a spare tire uh, in the back underneath the cargo floor. Uh, you know, you've got. You know, plenty of room inside this thing. You know, the third row is obviously not going to be as spacious as a Navigator, but it's definitely better than the current generation Explorer. Uh, so, you know, it's it's definitely usable. You've got you know a lot of the same you know similar kinds of design themes inside that you have on the Navigator. There's a Rebel audio system with 28 speakers and all kinds of uh, you know. DSPs and things to yeah uh, to, I didn't to make I didn't it sound like better. the sound of that one. <laughs> it's I, in the Navigator. It sounded kind of bad, but yeah, I'm well, picky, so there's that. Yeah, I like the engine turned to metal trim, and and it looks really, really, really classy in pictures. Yeah, and like and, and it looks, looks great awesome. in person too. You know, for a big three row crossover, this is you know, this is probably one of the best looking I've seen. You know, in that segment. So I, you know, oh, and what I didn't mention was the. The plug-in hybrid version, instead of pairing it with a smaller, say, four-cylinder engine, um, they're adding that on right onto the same twin-turbo three-liter V6. Uh, so this will, the, what they're calling the Aviator Grand Touring, which is the the plug-in hybrid, um, oh, I see. will be the most powerful production Lincoln ever. 450 horsepower and 600 foot-pounds of torque. So they're kind of doing what um, Volvo does, where the hybrid is the t8 you know it's the top of yep. the range yes that's i mean for a luxury suv that that makes sense yeah no absolutely and you know the interesting thing about this you know this is their new uh what they're calling their modular hybrid architecture you know so it's the it's the first of their um rear drive hybrid systems you know so we're going to see basically the same system showing up in the f-150 the explorer the mustang uh so, you know, if they're getting 450 horsepower and 600 foot pounds of torque in this thing, um, I think that's a that's a good sign for the upcoming uh, hybrid Mustang. Uh, yeah. And that stuff like these platforms and new tech for Ford are hotly anticipated, if even if the customers don't know it yet. Um, Ford's current lineup is getting a little long in the tooth in some ways. So. Uh, they're sitting on these five platforms. They're not really sitting on them, but they've got these five different platforms that are all going to start to launch. And I think we're going to see a lot of new stuff from Ford that makes the public aware that there has been stuff going on. 
Yeah, you know, stuff years. like this doesn't, you know, doesn't happen overnight. The work on this, you know, has been going on for almost four years now. You know, they 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 started down this path quite a long time ago, uh, and you know, this uh, the Aviator and the Explorer go into production in the spring. They'll be on sale by early summer, uh, and uh, it looks very promising. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's just it's a nice piece of design inside and out, and that's nice to see from Lincoln. You know, the Navigator, like you said, is is another nice piece of design, but uh, I expect that the the Aviator, if it catches on, might actually outsell the Navigator, but uh, maybe oh, I'm, maybe I'm, not. I'm, but... I'm, I suspect it, it almost certainly will. Um, this may very well turn out to be their best-selling vehicle. Okay, good. It better be good. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, what else did you see there? I see there's a new Porsche 911 that looks like the old Porsche 911, kinda. But that's normal. well, you know, I mean, the 911 is one of those icons that you can you can only change so much without you know turning off the fan base. Um, you know, it's ultimately it still has to still has to look like a 911, and. You know, in the case of the 911 in particular, you know, compared to a lot of other, uh, a lot of other, you know, cars that have been around for a long time, you know, they have a particularly dedicated fan base. You know, and this is a car that, you know, very nearly died in the early 1980s. You know, it almost went out of production. You know, it was supposed to be replaced by the 928. Um, you know, and that, you know, that never quite happened. You know, it got, it got saved. You know, they, they, um, revised it they you know kept redesigning it and this is now the the ninth generation of the 911 and it uh uh you know it it looks sharp you know i mean uh, obviously oh, yeah. you know as soon as you see it you you realize it's a 911 but when you start looking closer you know you you start to see some of the changes like for example this is the first time that they have staggered the the wheel sizes or you know the wheel diameters front to rear so the 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 rear wheels are a little bit larger in diameter than the fronts you know they've they've long had wider wheels at the back but they've always been the same diameter but now you know this one has larger diameter so it gives it you know it's very subtle but you know when you look at it you can see it's got a little more aggressive stance to it than it did before um, you know and they you know they've made other changes especially in the lighting uh, at the back, you know, now got, you look at the, the rear and it now has this slot kind of that goes all the way across, you know, with a, a slim LED tail lamp that goes all the way across, um, you know, that's, it, it looks, it looks quite sharp. You know, the interior is all new, you know, much, much more modern, but still, uh, yeah. you know, classically 911, you know, it still has, you know, the five round gauges directly in front of the driver, uh, the tack in the center. But the two um, on either side of it are actually digital displays, um, you know, seven-inch diameter digital displays. So um, you can reconfigure those to put whatever information you want on those. So you can ship, you know, actually, they can display simulated analog gauges or put other information there. Yeah, well, and Porsche, I think one of the things I like every time I drive a Porsche with Nav is that it puts that map right, right in the middle of the, the TAC or the speedometer display. Uh, so you can you can actually see the map there instead of looking over at the screen. Um, I just it looks like they've made the dashboard and the whole instrument panel all the way across evocative of that earlier nine eleven. You know the original sort of air cooled nine eleven generation where it had a, a more, more simple instrument panel than is sort of currently the fashion. Because this looks 
simplified, cleaned up Porsche interiors over the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years have gotten very cluttered heavy, you know. Yeah, the original Panamera was a thing. You look at that and you're like, holy crap, it's full of all these these bristles of like controls. And it's just, this looks, the center center console down by the shifter and the, the expanse of the, the dashboard and stuff, it's very cleaned up. So that bodes well. Um, the thing that I am less than thrilled about is that this the, the one that I saw on Autoblog, uh, the pictures of the, the gallery, it's a PDK. And I hope that they're not going all PDK. <laughs> Um, they're, stick they're, they're they're launching with all PDKs, uh, but there there will be some manual transmission 911s coming along eventually. There better be because that's like that's 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 a freaking 911. That's yeah. No, I I, I don't disagree. Uh, but you know, ultimately, the performance of the the PDK dual clutch uh, gearbox is is better, and that's what they're going for. Uh, yeah, and that's, I mean, it's hard that's to the one that most the... customers want now. Yeah. I mean, the ability of the PDK to not break the torque to the rear wheels as you're accelerating, you know, it's just the seamless flow of torque, even as it shifts gears. That's impressive. It's just boring. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, the other thing, you know, it's all, at least at launch, you know, it's all twin turbo uh, flat sixes. Uh, The S has 443 horsepower in the the Carrera S. Um, You know, so more, (laughs) yeah. if you think back, you know, to, you know, the 1970s when the original Porsche 930, the original 911 Turbo came out, you know, it was 300 horsepower. And in those days, that was just completely bonkers. That was amazing. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, even, you know, even the, uh, you know, the 959, you know, didn't have this kind of power, you know, but, you know, now you've got, you've got 443 horsepower, you know, as, as standard in the Carrera S and, you know, there's there's only going to be more powerful versions coming. You know, as you get the GT3 and the GT2, and you know the the various other you know higher performance versions. And actually, they they showed the other thing they had at the show was the um, 911 uh, GT2 RS Club Sport, which is actually a track only version uh, of the current uh, 911 GT2. It's naturally aspirated. Um, you know, has a big giant wing on there and it's a track car only so it's not uh, it's not legal it has no vin so you can't drive it on the street um but uh it'll you know that's going to be a very limited production model at a at a very high price uh although you know (laughs) this this 911 uh will not exactly be uh what we would call affordable the uh the coupe um or the the, the two door uh 911 Carrera S starts at $113,200 and the the 4S uh starts at $120,600. So they're they're getting up there in price. Yeah, because there's I think that's honestly that's smart. Um I would assume that Porsche looked at what the average price is for new 911s and they realized that nobody buys the base model. It was just because they have such a wide array of things you can add on and they're more than happy to charge you for those. So uh, they'll set the, set the price that gives them a little bit more room between that and the, the Cayman and Boxster as well, because those cars have evolved to really fill that, that need of like, I guess, starter Porsche. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Such as it is. Yeah. And, and so those are sort of, I, there's, there's, is that like, you know, my first Porsche was a Boxster and then I went to a, a 911, a used 911 and now I bought the new one. So there's, there's that, 
progression. And so I see moving the 911 up a little bit makes makes some sense. Although I I also expect there may be a rear drive only version with a less powerful engine that because these are all S's and four S's. Right. Uh, so there may be just a regular one, uh, and they're they're all Carreras too, right? So you get a 911. There might actually be one that's under 100 grand. So. Not much under 100 though. Yeah. And, and in fact, well, you know, if, you think, if, you're, if you're talking about Porsche, very often you know they they will charge you more to get less. Um, so oh, yeah. <laughs> the Boxster Spider, for example. Yes. <laughs> we Rain, took all the air conditioning and the radio out. If you want them, you can have them. You just pay more. Yeah. I have uh, Porsche people do that because that's, that's right. Uh, I don't know. It's I, called capitalism. I, I yeah. Um, that that's fine. I will never ever be able to afford a new Porsche. Is my guess. Um, but what I might be able to afford is let's see. The other stuff you saw was the the twenty twenty miles to three, which seems to have made some waves with the sedan and, and hatchback. Um, definitely won't be able to afford the Audi e-tron GT. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also the the twenty twenty Kia Soul was. Th- these are sort of your highlights. So. Yeah. Uh, so the, the, the Mazda, um, you know, the Mazda three, you know, has long been one of my favorite compact cars. Um, and the, the new one, you know, is the first uh, production model to embody this new version of uh, this updated version of Mazda's Kodo design language. You know, so it's a much um, smoother, but, you know, there's there's no you don't have the creases in the side, um, but there's still some distinct sculpting to it. You know, it has some shape to it. And, you know, when the light catches it, you can see these, um, the curves in the, in the body work. And, you know, it really looks sharp. It's, it's a very impressive design and the interior, you know, is far and away the, the best interior you will find on any mainstream compact car. I mean, nothing, nothing really comes close to what Mazda is doing in their interiors. It, it has an absolutely more premium feel uh, to anything in the segment. Um, the, the downside of the design potentially, especially on the hatchback uh, is visibility uh, maybe somewhat more restricted uh, or, yeah, or will be somewhat more restricted. The, you know, the, because of the way the, the belt line comes up, sweeps up in the back, you know, it has a fairly thick pillar in the back. Um, you know, the glass is kind of kept to a, a minimum. When you sit in the back seat, you know, the roof line actually, you know, curves over and, and down on the sides. So you have a high belt line and then the top, the top edge of the glass is actually relatively low. Um, so it can be a little claustrophobic feeling back there. Um, we'll, you know, we'll see, you know, once we get a chance to have it out on the road, you know, what it, what it actually feels like in terms of real world visibility. Um, but it's launching with um, the, the 2.5 liter four cylinder that's in the current Mazda three as the, as the upgrade engine. And then uh, at the end of 2019, so it go, the, the, the current, the, the, the launch version goes on sale about February or so of next year. And then towards the end of next year, um, they will have the global launch of the Sky Active X engine that we talked about earlier this year. It's the, the first uh, spark-controlled compression ignition engine, um, which is you know should give a significant boost in fuel economy to this thing. Uh, and it'll it'll uh, uh, it'll launch initially in Europe um, and then come over here to the U.S. Um, they haven't said exactly when it'll launch in the U.S. market, uh, but they're 
you know, that it will be coming uh, in the Mazda 3 and, and probably in other Mazda models as well. And then uh, are they going to bring this guy active D, the diesel, or not? We don't know. Uh, it's okay. it, they, they actually finally got all the paperwork done for the CX-5, and it should be launching in the CX-5 uh, imminently. Uh, like in the last couple of weeks, they finally got everything signed off by EPA. And so that should be going on sale shortly. Um, during a, a briefing we had on Thursday morning, uh, they did say that there would be other diesel announcements coming, but they gave no indication as to what models. Uh, my guess is we're more likely to see something in the CX-9 uh, than any other models. Uh, but who knows? Um you know, frankly, though, you know, having driven the the prototype Skyactiv X, I don't think you need the diesel um, in the three. I yeah. think the Skyactiv X will be just dandy. Um, I'm I'm really looking forward to driving the production version of that. All right. I mean, that's my assumption too is that in the in the European market, the hatch is going to do well, and here in the U.S. Um, Neither the hatch nor the sedan will do that well, but the sedan will probably do better. Uh, um, the the Mazda three hatch, you know, has traditionally done pretty well over here. You know, actually, you know, compact it? hatches uh, in recent years have have done fairly well. You know, as part of the you know in terms of take rate um, in the segment. Um, you know, so I, I don't. You know, I mean, it's not going to be like ten percent uh, penetration. You know, it'll probably be somewhere closer to like thirty to forty percent of sales. I mean, it's a slick looking car. I, oh, I yeah, kind of wonder how slick. Mazda. I wonder how Mazda does it, <laughs> given that this they're independent. You know, they they don't have a whole lot of uh, institutional largesse behind them. You know, these this, continue to. This just, is this is something that you know we talked. You know, I was I was fortunate enough to sit in several briefings with some of the folks from Mazda, including their their head of product development, their head of powertrain, and their head of design. Uh, over a couple of days in LA, and you know they they talked about you know kind of their their process, which is you know there's a lot um, you know they they really focus on you know trying to get the fundamentals right, and you know the keeping you know keeping things relatively straightforward, not making it too complex, and you know being able to share a lot of things across their vehicles. They they know they're well aware of the fact that they have limited resources compared to a lot of larger companies. And so they, they really focus on, you know, trying to, um, you know, get, get thing, get the fundamentals right and be able to sh then share that, share those elements across multiple vehicle lines, um, and, you know, and make the most out of everything that they do. Yeah, well, I mean, it seems seems to be working for them. It's just it's Im impressive that they can do stuff that bigger automakers can't. Yeah, or, or they're well, they're and, you know now to you know now they also have a tie up with Toyota, um, right? You know, which which, uh, yeah, which which will help them you know especially on the electrification side. And you know, come twenty twenty, you know, Toyota or Mazda will be launching their first battery electric vehicle, uh, and they're also going to have. Uh, range extended electric vehicle which will use uh, a wankel rotary as the range extender yeah which i mean i anytime you can use the wankel i love it absolutely <laughs> might not be the best way to do it but i, I love it because well it's just you know it, i think it, so i think in that application you know as the range extender i think it'll actually work really well because it's so compact um you yeah. know and so power dense you know and you know when you're using it 
you know, largely, you know, in a steady state condition rather than revving it up and down all the time. Uh, I think, you know, with that and direct injection, I think it can be reasonably efficient as well. Yeah, we'll just see how much oil it burns. But <laughs> um, uh, we'll see. So, did you want to touch on the uh, the Etron GT and the Soul, or yeah, other than... uh, I'll, okay. I'll hit those uh, fairly quickly. The the Soul, um, you know, Kia actually launched uh, two vehicles here. Uh, one is the the uh, the Soul, um, you know, which is all new, um, as well as the Nero EV, which is the you know battery electric version of the Nero. Um, interestingly, the the Soul. Will be available in three variants. Uh, so the X line, which has a, I think, a 1.6 liter uh, naturally aspirated engine. Um, the uh, S line, which has the um, the same uh, two liter or 1.6 liter turbo that you'll find in cars like the Veloster Turbo and you know some of the other uh, more performance oriented Kias and Hyundai's uh, with you know 200 horsepower. Uh, and then also a new Soul EV. Uh, you know, so there's been a Soul EV available in California and a handful of other states for for a few years now, and it, it was really good. It, you know, it was surprisingly, excuse me, surprisingly efficient. You know, had decent range. Uh, you know, would go it would easily go over 100 miles uh, on a charge, uh, even with you know like only a 27 kilowatt hour battery. Um, but the the new Soul EV. Uh, is getting the same 64 kilowatt hour battery and the same 200 horsepower electric motor that's in the Kona EV, as well as in the Nero EV. So you know the Soul you know, obviously is a little more interesting to look at. Um, you know, and it you know it, it's kept you know largely the same profile as the the first two generations of Soul, uh, but you know much you know slimmer headlamps up front. Uh, you know a little more aggressive look. Um, you know, a little bit of change in the, the D pillar. It's got you know kind of the floating roof line type of thing now with the black trim separating the the pillar from the roof. Uh, looks pretty cool, um, but uh, you know if you want something, that, you know, and you know it's about the same size. You know, which is you know the Soul's always been a good package. It's always been pretty fun to drive. Um, but then you also have the Nero EV, which is a little bit longer. You know, if you need more space in the back seat, you know, if you're regularly carrying a couple of kids back there or, or you know, some friends, um, you might prefer the Nero. You know, it's a little less exciting visually, uh, but it's, you know, it's a great package. Uh, it's a good size, you know, lots of room inside. Um, and, you know, it'll, it'll, you know, they'll both be in the, you know, in the close to 250 mile uh, range on a charge. Um, and, you know, priced, you know, in the uh, starting, you know, around 37,000 range. I think the Soul might be slightly cheaper. I'm not sure. Uh, but the, uh, they'll, they'll be in the 37,000 range. So with the, the tax credit uh, that's still available on those, you, you, know, you get it down uh, under $30,000, which, which would be a pretty nice package. Yeah. I, the Kia, the Soul is just one of my favorite cars ever. And um, I just I love that they continue to tweak it and refine it too. you know, all wheel drive with EV like it just or no, this does does the soul not have all wheel drive? I think that's one of the ones that I was thinking of. Uh, Not not with the EV. Um, And I don't think it does on the gas engine versions either. I don't think it ever has had all wheel drive. I think it's always just been front drive. Yeah, I think it it has. So that's one of the the things that. I feel like it could just constantly use is all wheel drive just to give it another selling point. But if it sells without needing it, like, yeah, 
That's that's fine. I drove a soul all the way across Wisconsin and back in like a day and a half. And it was, it was great. I, they tried to give me a fiesta at first. I was like, Nope. (laughs) (laughs) The the soul is just a, it's a, it's a great package. It's, it's, it's fun to drive. Yeah. It's, it, it doesn't make any pretenses. It's just, it's comfortable. All the stuff works in it. It's simple to figure out. It's it. Yeah. I, I like it a lot. So I'm glad that they're making it better. Yeah, no, it, it definitely uh, looks like it's getting better. Um, one one thing you know, I was talking with uh, James Bell, head of communications at Kia, um, yesterday or, or Thursday, and you know I asked him about you know actual availability and one of the you know one of the issues they've got you know um, and this this applies across all of the EVs uh, from Hyundai and Kia uh, is uh, battery supply. Um, you know they're, they're They've got limits on their battery capacity, battery, battery supply right now, which is why when it launches here in the U.S., it will only be um, available in California and the other uh, ZEV states. Once they get uh, battery production increased, then they will you know, start to make it available across the other states. But for now, you know, only the states that actually mandate EVs will be have it available. Uh, and, you know, they're also... Um, they're shipping more of the EVs to Europe as well, where there's there's more consumer demand for EVs than there is here in the U.S. Yeah. Well, <laughs> once we get some gigafactories and stuff online, we should have more supply than we know what to do with. Yeah, right? <laughs> uh, sure. Whatever you say. <laughs> then then you still then you still have to convince people to actually buy them, which is yeah. a non trivial matter going to be an issue yeah. batteries uh that's yeah that's something that uh there should be i'm sure there is there's just lots of r&d and, and investment going on in batteries to find that like battery equivalent of cold fusion yeah that would be the uh, the solid state cell um which <coughs> may or may not ever show up if you if you ask henrik Fisker, it's, it's, it'll be here in 2020 but if you ask pretty much anybody else uh it's more like 2030 I I don't understand the idea behind a solid state. So I just I I don't know. It, it's not like it's not like batteries. Oh, I guess they aren't really solid state now. They're 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 chemical. But well, how are you going to well, store the, a charge? The, and- the, the difference with a solid state cell is that you know the current batteries use either a liquid or polymer electrolyte between the uh, the cathodes and anodes, um, yeah. and the the electrons flow across that. Solid state cell um, uses a ceramic material, so it's actually solid, as opposed to liquid or polymer, um, and or, or gel. You know, the polymer is, is more like a gel. It uses a, a ceramic electrolyte or a ceramic, a cel- a ceramic electrolyte. And the the issue that you know from the conversations I've had with people working on solid state battery technology is that. Um, you know, they can make cells that work. Um, the problem is the, the ceramic has higher resistance than the, the liquid or polymer electrolytes. And so the power level is lower. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, also manufacturing it, getting it, manufacturing them at scale uh, is still proving problematic. So, you know, they can make the traditional style batteries, you know, in large quantities uh, without too much difficulty now. But the solid state ones are still problematic to ma- to manufacture. So that's why nobody's done it yet. Huh. I'll be interesting to see that happen. I'm, I'm still confused about how you get the transfer of electrons 
efficiently out of ceramic. <laughs> but <laughs> well, it, I mean, it's a it's a different kind of ceramic material. It's not like anything you're you're used to seeing. And I'm thinking pottery. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's very different from that. It's not like clay. Uh, huh. So it, yeah, it, you know, some of the material science stuff that's going on in the battery world is is pretty fascinating, but it's going to be on my level of expertise. So um, not, uh, I don't want to dive in too deep and, and say stuff that is nonsense. All right, well, let's move on. Okay. I'll say some nonsense about right. some other stuff. All right. <laughs> Audi e-tron GT, last one I want to touch on from, from LA. Um, this is basically the Porsche Taycan. And I got confirmation from uh, somebody at Porsche. The correct pronunciation will be Taycan, as in uh, as if it as if it was spelled T-A-Y-C-O-N, uh, not Taycan. Uh, so this is uh, built on the same uh, Taycan platform. Uh, it's roughly uh, an A7 sized car, uh, but with a two inch lower roof line. It's it's about an inch shorter overall. You know, it looks like a tighter, tidier package. You know, it's definitely more of a, a sports coat, a sports coupe, sports car than the than the uh, A7. You know, which you know, it, the 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 roof line you know sweeps down a little faster. Um, you know, it's it's a little little less bulbous uh, looking in the back, a little little sleeker looking. Um, really impressive looking car, um, and this will be one of you know one of three main EV platforms that we're going to see from the Volkswagen group. So you've got the, the MEB platform, which is the, the front wheel drive um, stuff that, you know, or, you know tra- or the, the smaller vehicles, smaller to midsize vehicles um, that we see that's uh, the, the ID hatchback, the ID buzz, uh, the ID crossover, all of those vehicles and other variants from other VW group brands are going to be on that one. Then there's this MLB Evo platform, which is used for the e-tron Quattro that we saw in September, uh, as well as for the upcoming uh, e-tron Sportback. Uh, and then the what's known as currently known as the J1 platform, which was developed primarily by Porsche uh, and will be used for the Taycan and uh, the Taycan Cross Turismo, as well as this e-tron GT. And probably, I would guess, you know, we'll probably see, you know, like a Bentley or two off of this platform. The the thing that's really different about, about this platform is these are all, uh, this is an 800 volt architecture. So all the others are like 400 volt systems. Um, you know, as you start ramping up the voltage, you get much more efficiency uh, in the system. So you get better, better energy efficiency. Uh, and it also supports 350 kilowatt charging. Uh, so you can, you know, do an 80% charge in about 15 minutes. Uh, and this, this thing looks really hot. Um, and, you know, considering that Porsche has said the Taycan will start uh, somewhere around eighty-five dollars to $90,000, presumably the, the Audi variant will be a bit less than that. So maybe in the $75,000 range uh, to start, 590 horsepower, 0 to 60 in three and a half seconds. Um, and that, that 350 kilowatt charging, uh, be hard to complain much about this. Well, that's the the Etron Quattro is the one that they had that cool interior and in, right with the the um, fabric versus uh, sort of the standard kind of like leather and stuff that you see. That's what stuck out to, about that car to me was just the design of it. It's a uh, that was nice more design, no, that was the BMW i next. Was it? I thought it was. I thought there's an Audi I was looking at. 
Anyway. Uh, okay. Yeah, well, I mean, they've, they've been playing around with different <laughs> materials with Audi. I mean, everybody's trying different materials. But um, the iNext is, you know, that one's got some interesting stuff. You know, they're they're building in, you know, touch surfaces into the the fabrics and, you know, experimenting with all kinds of different inter- interfaces. Uh, but we we can talk about that some other time. Yeah, we don't need to go into that now. I mean, I think that the the Etron Quattro is is just a great design exercise, and just being a visual creative person, that's what I come back to. Um, well, the, no, the Etron the, Quattro is the crossover that we saw in in uh, September. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Just want to make sure we're on the same page there. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, apparently you don't like the design of it. No, it's fine. But but you know the the you know that one you know is kind of it's a bit more conventional you know it's similar to what you see with the q7 it's like a slightly smaller q7 uh, you know whereas the the gt is kind of i think you know the way they described it is sort of the next generation of audi design you know going a little more uh extreme with some of the lines you know a little more aggressive looking uh you know smaller grill than what we've seen in recent years um so, you know, and it's, you know, certainly, you know, in the GT, you know, it's, it's definitely designed to be a sleeker, sportier vehicle than the, than the Quattro, um, you know, which is a more, more of a mainstream premium crossover that happens to be electric. Yeah. And if there's anything that we need more of, it's mainstream premium crossovers that happen to be electric. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you, you know, you're only going to have, you know, the the Teslas, the Audi, the Mercedes EQC, the BMW iNext, um, you know, so, you know, and presumably something from Ford and GM. So, yeah, no, I, I think we definitely need more. <laughs> well, it'll, it'll, at the very least, it'll push battery technology, right? Because you're going oh, to have to get batteries to make all these things go. Yeah. Well, you know, that's assuming they can, again, you know, find customers for these things. Yeah. No, I, you know, the, the, so I guess what I like about the Etron Quattro is as a design exercise, it's probably a lot of what I like about the Aviator too, is like, it's, it's just classic proportions and, mm-hmm. and just sort of very, very classy overall. And it, it's not trying to do like the Prius thing or even a Tesla where it's like, look how weird we are. Yeah. We're just, we're just solidly good looking. Right. It's, it's, it's not, it's not trying to stand out as being an eco car or a green car, but it's, it's standing out based just on, you know, pure aesthetics. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I like that being a visual person and electric cars are great. Yeah. They are great to drive. <laughs> uh, if only I'm they all, sounded all like big V8s. Well, you, they they can. So I see that's that's an opportunity that they're missing is the ability to select the um, powertrain sample that gets played over the in car audio system when you accelerate. Right? They could just pipe it in with the audio system. Yeah, well we we've, we've heard we've heard how that how well that turned out with the BMW M5. Well, I think it's just because they they were sneaky about it, right? And and they were like, no, no, we're just. And that's that's because people expect that level of of noise in the interior, but there's also noise regulations on the outside that it has to pass. So BMW was trying to be clever, and they 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 kind of outclevered themselves. I think if you gave people the option to select the samples they wanted to hear, and the level and all that, give them some control over what it sounds like inside. You'll, people will take more ownership of it, and they won't feel like hey, you're trying to pull a fast one. 
Yeah. That's my armchair psychologist. Okay. <laughs> All right. Speaking of psychology, uh, <laughs> uh, GM offended everybody. Uh, uh, pretty much. Yeah. Closing plants. Yeah. Um, I they they got to do it, though. Remember how everybody was offended when they went bankrupt? They're trying to not do that again. Yeah, pretty much. Um, you know, GM has had, you know, more underutilized plants than any of its competitors here in North America in recent years, or at least in the last couple of years. And so, you know, Mary Barra basically pulled the plug and said, OK, we're we're going to shut these down. We're going to cancel some of these vehicles um, and you know, others are going to live on, you know, but just be manufactured somewhere else. So. Um, you know, they announced on Monday, um, just as, uh, as a bunch of us were getting on a plane to Los Angeles that, uh, they're shutting down or let me rephrase that. They are deallocating the Oshawa, Ontario plant for GM Canada, the Detroit Hamtramck assembly plant, the, um, uh, the Lordstown, Ohio assembly plant and the transmission plants in Baltimore and Warren, Michigan. Um, and what that means when they say deallocating, it means that the products that are currently being built there are going to be drawing to a close, will no longer be built at those plants. And right now, there are no new products assigned to those plants. The plants are not going to be scrapped or torn down for at least not yet. You know, they're, they're going to be put into mothballs. Um, and there is a potential as new products come out, you know, if there's demand, that they will bring those plants back online, building new products. And my guess is that we'll probably see at least one of either the Detroit Hamtramck or Lordstown factories come back online in the next couple of years. Um, probably not both and almost certainly not the Oshawa plant. Uh, but for now, the plan is to continue, um, you know, to, to just uh, idle those plants uh, and lay off the people that are working there. This is not the first time GM's done this, um, you know, and actually brought a plant back. The, the Spring Hill, Tennessee plant was mothballed after, you know, 10 years ago after GM uh, canceled Saturn, you know, if they shut down the Saturn division, because that was the plant that built originally was built for Saturn. Um, and then a couple of years later, it was revived to build crossovers and they built the Chevy Traverse and the GMC Acadia and, and some other crossovers at that plant now. And it's humming along nicely. And I would guess that at least one of the two U.S. assembly plants that's being closed will come back as GM starts to launch a bunch of these electric vehicles that they've promised over the next couple of years. Um, or, or perhaps, you know, with, you know, depending on how the sales of other crossovers go, they might shift something else in there. But that's, that's the plan for now. You know, Mary Barra wants to make sure that, you know, she's making the hard decisions now to avoid being stuck with a lot of excess capacity, you know, a couple of years from now or five years from now and, and have to go through, you know, the, you know, begging for another bailout or, or bankruptcy again. Yeah. And that doesn't change the issue that comes with a, a move like this. Uh, you know, it sucks for the the workers. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a union sympathizer. I'm, I, I'm with the, the workers, you know, but you also got to understand that, you know, you ultimately you have to run a business, you know, to 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 be viable and sustainable for the long term. And, you know, if you don't do that, then you end up going out, of you know, going under or going bankrupt and you end up with the problems that, you know, the GM had 10 years ago. Yeah, where they were bailed out. 
Yeah. And so. So take your pick. You know, you can, you know, you can make the tough decisions now or, or have another bailout, you know, later. Well, what might be nice is if there's some sort of support for uh, getting those those workers some kind of uh, retraining. And I don't mean programming because not everybody can be a freaking programmer. No, definitely um, but, not. But, you know, into some other kind of work uh, that keeps them in their community. I mean, part the other thing is, hey, uh, move to where the jobs are. That's really hard when you're like in your late 40s and mid 50s. You know, uh, it's, it's not necessarily a young workforce, the, the auto auto. Uh, plant workforce um and i'm sure there's there's some that are they're younger from the you know the 20s into the 30s but uh you know can they move can they move them around to some other gm facilities can they get them into other other job training programs can they find them places at suppliers i mean that's the other thing where you got suppliers located near the plants and the plants close so do the suppliers so i, yeah, I, don't know. I mean you I, know like you nice know, some of the people. some of the people that work at detroit hamtramck you know could could definitely end up being transferred to other plants um, like, uh, you know, like, like Lansing or, or, you know, some other facilities. Uh, so there are possibilities, but absolutely, you know, um, retraining, you know, for new skills um, is, is important, it, you know, but it, it's tough to find the right, you know, to get the right kind of training. You know, how, what do you, what do you train, what do you train these people for? You know, especially like you say, if you want to keep them in their, in their community and keep the community going, you know, what can you bring in and, and how can you train the employees, you know, that are being laid off to do those new kinds of jobs? So right. you need to you need to get both pieces of that, both the developing the skills, but also, um, you know, getting something in place, you know, that's more than just a boondoggle like the, the, the Foxconn factory in Wisconsin. Yeah, well, it's just like this kind of industrial monoculture um, where you've got, a, you know, you're a factory town and that. That can be great until the factory's gone, and then there's, you know, you, you now you have this problem with with people needing to work and not anything for them to do. So uh, it's tough, and and the the Hamtramck plant too. There's a whole other backstory to that. That's just oh yeah, it's kind of annoying <laughs> that they, yeah. they they got that plant through in the early '80s uh, the way they did, and and now they're it's not good enough. Uh, or it's, it's well, you know, it, it, it's not so much that the plant itself is not good enough, but it's just that the products that are being built there, the Chevy Volt, um, you know, the, the Buick LaCrosse, uh, the Cadillac CT6, you know, and uh, uh, what else? Oh, the Cadillac XTS are, and the Impala are just not selling. They just can't sell enough of them. There's no demand for those vehicles. And so, yeah. you know, they need to they need to shift over to excuse me, to vehicles that consumers actually want to buy. Yeah. Well, I hope we're just in that lag period and they, they sort it out and whoever they can bring back, they bring back. And, yeah. Uh, things things don't look as bleak, but it's it's tough. Especially right before Christmas. Great time. Yeah. Well, you know, fortunately, you know, uh, for the, the workers, uh, you know, yes, they're getting the news right before Christmas, but um, most of them, uh, will you know most of the plants will continue in production through uh, spring and summer of next year, so they're they're not immediately getting laid off. Yeah, well, although although the same does not necessarily hold true for a lot of the the salaried ranks because GM as part as part of this you know these changes GM's also laying off a whole bunch of people from the the salaried workforce you know from engineering teams and and other areas um, that where there's 
and, and management where there's simply too many people right now. Right, that's true. It's not just the hourly workers. It is it is salary people. It's just it's cuts. You know, GM, you you can't let it get too big and and not address it. Otherwise, yeah, we we see we've seen the way that yeah, ends. Yeah, so, we've we've already uh, been down that road. Yeah, I mean, uh, and if anything, um, Mary Barr has has shown that she's she's pretty pretty prescient about what's going on, and and it, it could be a harbinger of a a larger economic uh, issue. On, that we're kind of on the cusp of. So I, I don't know. I hope that's not it either, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it just, you know, we'll pour one out for some of the factories <laughs> for now. And uh, hope, hope for the best for everybody in Lordstown and Detroit and Oshawa and, and uh, Baltimore and Warren. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, that bleak note, cause I, I, I can't speak anymore with more, any more authority about it. Maybe if somebody wants to come on the show, they can let us know and we can, can have them come on. They can talk GM manufacturing. That'd be great actually. Um, but otherwise I think, I think we're dead. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's call it a wrap. All right. All so right. Uh, successful LA auto show next, uh, next one up is what? Uh, Detroit. It's not or Detroit. I'll see yes first and then Detroit. Yeah. Uh, right. But that's not till next month. So uh, uh, I've got a few weeks to get, get my uh get myself <laughs> mentally prepared for uh especially for ces ces is always I a do. zoo ces is like sema oh uh, no it's much worse than sema oh, okay because <laughs> at least sema you know I, I haven't been to sema but at least it's all you know kind of confined to the las vegas convention center that's your ces is scattered all over las vegas you know up and down the entire length of the las vegas strip every major hotel has uh suites and and you know they every hotel's got their own convention facilities so you've got the entire la uh, las vegas convention center plus the sands and uh the Wynn and the bellagio and and mandalay bay it's just it's insane that sounds terrible it is it's horrible <laughs> And if I didn't have to do All it right. for my job, there is no way I would ever go to Las Vegas ever again. Yeah. Okay. I, I can definitely agree with that. All right. If, <laughs> so, if, if, you, if you like what you hear, you know, tell your friends uh, to listen to the show and, you know, maybe uh, drop a review in, in iTunes or somewhere uh, where, where you can leave reviews for podcasts and, and help us grow the audience. Yeah. All right. We'll catch everybody next week. All right. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.